You take a, a war hero and you think, I'm not really going to be fighting you know, too much. I'm not really going to do too much where I'm out on a battlefield having to come up with strategic offensive maneuvers against an army. But I want to tell you, you are in a battle, whether you know it or not. And the people sitting around you are the soldiers that you're fighting with. And the reality is the Bible says that you're in a war where Satan and his, and his demonic activity want to tear you down. And the battle that you fight is one that's bigger than the ones Joshua fought because it has eternity as ultimately its end goal and end result. You are in a battle. But I think when we look at Joshua, I even made a list here um, before we pray. It's natural to focus on all the things he did. He was a, his name was changed from Hosea to Yeshua, which of course means salvation in Hebrew and eventually became the name Jesus, Messiah. Uh, confidently asserted that the promised land could be taken from giants. Remember in Numbers 14, God himself spoke to him and he always obeyed in Joshua chapter 3. People obeyed his every word in Joshua 1. He took Israel across the Jordan River the same way Moses did in Joshua 3. Uh, He wrote the law on stone like Moses had and set up memorials honoring God. And then he conquered Canaan amidst brutal retaliating armies and died at the symbolic age of 110. We go, okay, that's cool, great life. But what we have to understand is that it's not what Joshua did in the amazing feats he did that really, really are applicable to us as much as who he was. How did he get where he got? And the question I want to ask you guys is if you want to ask God to do big things in your life, we need to understand how he takes us in that process to get us to those great things. What is the process we go to? How do we become great people for the Lord so that, you know, someday when we stand in heaven, we'll be able to look a man like Joshua in the eye and say, you know what? I fought too. I fought too. Let's pray for Pastor Chuck, shall we? God, I want to ask that right now that we will... uh, We'll just have an amazing night together. I love the fact that Dave had us jumping in worship. I love the fact that when we give Joel a microphone, we don't know what's going to happen during announcements. I love the fact that we have people on staff like Pastor uh, Patty who just have been with us serving for so long and so many years. And uh, it's an honor to be a part of this family. But even more than that, I love the fact, Holy Spirit, that you have given us an air-conditioned building in a free country where we can come and examine the truth that has changed history and going to change eternity. Father, I love the fact that we get to come here as a family and open up your word, and I want to ask that you will speak through us, Lord. Protect our pastor as he's away tonight. Uh, Bring him back to us safely and continue to do great things at Crossroads. But God, tonight, Holy Spirit, please let us hear the things that you want us to hear. And we pray this in your name. Amen. Ready to get going? Yeah? All right, let's do this. Exodus chapter 17. Open your Bibles. Let's go there. Exodus 17, I want you to write down one thing for me. The first thing I want you to write down is this. It's the idea that if we look back in the history of of Joshua and say, who was this man? We know Moses was a great man. We know Joshua was kind of his, uh, his trainee, the guy that kind of followed him around and learned from him. But then we want to look inside and say, okay, how did Joshua get to that spot? What happened in his life? I want you to write this word down. As you turn to Exodus 17, grab a pen and write down on a piece of paper, he was a man who underwent learning. He learned. Now, look at Exodus chapter 17, and go ahead and start reading with me in verse 9. It says, Moses said to Joshua, choose men for us and go out, fight against Amalek, because tomorrow I will station myself on the top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. And Joshua did as Moses told him and fought against Amalek, and Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill, in verse 13, so Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. In verse 14, then the Lord said to Moses, write this in a book as a memorial and recite it to Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek. Now let's hold on to one word right there, the word memorial. I want you to grab onto that. See, if you look at scripture, this is the very first time ever in the Bible that the idea and the concept of something written was ever mentioned. See, and you can, there's nowhere before this you're going to find the idea of writing. 
God says to Moses, he says, you know, a neat thing happened. And what I kind of get confused about is right here, you, you, picture, you picture Moses sitting up on top of the hill. He's the old guy. He has a stick in his hand. And he's sitting up there and he says, okay, Joshua, buddy, as long as this stick's being held up, you're going to win that battle down there, so you go do the dirty work. Now, here's the hard part. If you're Joshua, you're looking up back at that hill all the time as you're fighting, thinking, all right, Moses, don't get tired right now, buddy. Don't get tired. And he's holding that stick up, and Joshua's advancing, and Amalek's been, being defeated. The Amalekites were a horrible army that had done some just brutal things to the Israelites. But here's the key. The battle's won, and then Moses stops, and he says, Joshua, or scribes, write every single thing down so that what? So that Joshua, for the rest of his career and the rest of his life, is able to recount the amazing things that God has done. Now, here's the question for you. Are you at a place where you're sitting here and you're saying, you know what? I want to do great things. I want to do great things for the Lord. God, if you will just come down and show yourself to me, I'm ready to be a soldier. I want to be a champion. I want to have the, uh, the faith and the understanding of the patriarchs. In my job, I want to convert thousands. I want people to know about you. Here's the question, but are you preparing and documenting the process that God is taking you on so that when you get to the journey, you'll be able to understand it was him that was faithful and not you on your own accord in your own works? See, that's the idea here. It's not like Moses wrote it down so that Joshua could just have it there as, as, as a tribute to him. He wrote it so he could go back and remember the fact that God was the one that was winning these battles. Now, here's an on, on, on a, obvious application, if you're just real honest. I'd say, how many of you guys actually open up your Bibles every single day and do quiet times? How many of you, since Chuck started talking about it, actually journal and write down every single day the things that you learn? See, I think this is one of the hardest things to do. We have a whole group of guys now that are pumped up. I still remember the first time that Chuck ever... Uh, stood up on stage and mentioned that he had, I think, journaled for 2,074 straight days. I thought, wow, that's amazing. And it was a challenge to me, and I began doing it. I can say that today was my 561st day. Straight journaling, quiet times, never missing. And I want to tell you, a lot of times, though, here's the issue. We begin to trust more on the journaling and on the quiet time than on the relationship with God and the reason we do it. And pretty soon, a good thing can just become a bad thing because it's only out of human tradition and human ritual, Right? The reason that we want to have these things is so God can teach us something. And I love the fact we have this whole group of guys that wake up every morning and they say, I'm on day 21. I'm excited about that. I love the fact that when we, we put in a new little thing in our ministry that says when you break day 100, even if you miss a day, you get to still say, hey, you know, hey I'm on day 110, but I've missed one. You don't have to go all the way back to zero. The reason we do that is because it inspires people to stay in the word. But the reason you want to journal, the reason you want to jot things down is why? So you feel spiritual? No, it's so that you remember the things that God did. Because if you can't look back, a lot of times we go, yeah, you know what, I got this job and I'm doing well and things are going good and I got to this spot, but you know, it's on my own ability. And it's a slow process. My marriage is doing good. I'm so sensitive to my wife. You know, I didn't call her Barney for three days. Yeah. But the reality is, is when we go back to our journal and we say, oh, I remember when I was begging God for that particular moment. I remember when I was begging God and then he answered that prayer. I have a buddy named Dan and Pastor Chuck had given a message, I don't know if you remember it, where he said in youth ministry one time, he got a big screen TV. Do you remember that? He prayed for a big screen TV. He prayed and prayed and prayed and then one day he got a big screen TV. Well, through a, a few circumstances, my buddy Dan and I were sitting out here and we happened to be in the same service and Chuck talked about how he got a free big screen TV just by praying. And so I thought, you know, um, I'll, I'll do that too. <laughs> I don't know, I guess God answers prayers. And there was a moment where I, Dan had his own story where he had been playing video games with his family on this little screen that he had in his living room. And he was saying, Tony, I want to be a good dad. I want the family to come in. And we play these four-player games and, and we want everybody to be able to interact. 
And I said, hey, that's funny, Dan. I'm in the same boat. See, we went to the Philippines. We came back. And then we put up, uh, you know, the, the, the old one-year-old plasma that we had, we gave to my parents to put up in a big room they had empty. And so then what happened was we moved. We moved and left. And I, I wasn't going to, you know, I got to say, appliances are expensive. You got a refrigerator, you have a washer, a dryer. We're a young married couple. And so I kind of looked at my wife and I said, I got a sneaky idea. We'll tell mom and dad, you keep the TV. Just give us, you know, the $1,500, whatever it is, and we'll go out and we'll buy, you know, we'll buy some stuff, you know, refrigerator and everything that we need. We might not have a TV for a while, but that's okay. We need these things more. And my mom said, no problem. So we moved out here. We got our refrigerator, we got our washer, our dryer, everything's going good and we're hanging out. But now Dan, Dan Pierce doesn't have a TV and I don't have a TV. And have you ever just not had a TV and realized you didn't really need a TV after you didn't have one? It's kind of a crazy thing. But after a while, I'm thinking, oh, I really want one. And here's the problem. When certain sports seasons come up, like football or like the NCAA tournament or like basketball, the finals, you just can't handle not being able to watch it as a dude. It, it'll, seriously, it'll drive you crazy. You would travel you know, a thousand miles to go see that one Laker game, even though you know they're going to lose the Celtics. You know, did you guys all know they were going to lose? Was that pretty obvious? I think by game four, you're kind of thinking, this is just, you know, I'm sorry, I'm not, I'm not a loving fan. I, I was so upset with, with our team. But anyway, it's crazy how that happens. So Dan and I are sitting in church, Chuck talks, we're both TV-less, and we begin praying. I said, okay, buddy, I'm going to do it if you do it. Now, I started praying for a plasma. I thought, if I'm going to do this, God, you better do it big. Why don't mess around? And so I began praying. And I'll tell you, three days later, I call my mom, and I say, hey, mom, how you doing? Things are going good out here. She says, oh, by the way, I want to let you know something that happened. I was dusting your TV, and she's like, I don't know how to really say this to you. Thank you for giving it to us. But I kind of pulled it over to dust the top, and it fell on top of me, and I caught it. But by the time I put it back, I turned it on, and it was kind of all fuzzy. And I'm like, huh, oh, good. Glad I gave that to you. Thank you very much. And then she says, but I don't know what to do with it. Dad went down because he was so frustrated not being able to watch the playoffs that he just bought another one, and so now it's sitting in the garage. Do you want to come get it? And I thought, no, I don't want to bust a TV. I prayed for a real TV. <laughs> come on, Lord, this is not funny. And so we're hanging out and everything, and all of a sudden my wife goes, well, you know, my dad or someone might be able to fix it or something. So we go drive all the way out to Glendora and waste $800 worth of gas. We finally pick up the TV. You know, I mean, could have bought a TV for as much gas as we spent. We get back, but then this thought comes, and I'm in my quiet time the next morning, and I'm jotting down, and I'm writing it again. Lord, please give me a TV. And I tell you, God, I don't know why. I don't, I'm not believe he's a TV fanatic, but he put, I'm telling you, he put it on my heart. He said, why don't you just go to Sam's Club and tell him what happened? I'm like, okay. So we drive down to Sam's Club, load the TV in, walk in, and I'm really honest with the people. I said, hey, I got to tell you, you know, my TV, it's, uh, you know, um, here's what happened. My mom was dusting it, it kind of fell, she caught it, but it doesn't seem to be working and everything. The guy walks over and he goes, well, let me get a technician for you. The technician looks at it and he goes, nope, case structure looks pretty good, understands like uh, it's not working. So why don't you do this? This is an old model, so why don't you go ahead and just, just, just take whatever TV you want over from the counter? <laughs> what do you mean? No, anyone. That's an old model, so you might as well grab a nice one. Well, how big? I'm big as you want. So now Sam's Club sends me over. So I'm walking over. Not only do I get a brand new 42-inch plasma that really is amazing, then I get one of those uh, TV stands because it was actually less than the original big bulky one that we had. So I'm on the phone, and I'm calling Dan Pierce. I said, ah, Dan, God loves me more than he loves you. I got my plasma TV. And he goes, Tony, you won't believe what happened. Same time I'm getting my free TV, he had been praying for the last three days. He goes, my brother came down, and he looked at my TV and said, hey, I'm getting a plasma. Do you want my 60-inch TV? I said, no, God loves me more. 
And he's yelling at me, and we're yelling back and forth in this moment, and all of a sudden we're jumping up and down like girls, TVs, TVs, TVs. What I didn't tell you is that his isn't a plasma, so if you know how to, if you're going to pray, pray right, all right? Don't mess around. His is a big 60-inch old-school tube TV. But you know what's weird is I never would have been able to recount that story unless I had have written it down. I would look at my TV every single day and I would turn it on and I would forget to be grateful and forget to be thankful, but it's the fact that in memorial I've written it down and I have it circled in my journal that when I go back and flip through my journal, I remember the moment that God said, you know what, Tony, I don't love TVs. In fact, there's a lot of stuff on there that's probably not good, but I want to tell you I love you and I want to work out my plan in your life. It was a memorial. It was something that I can recite back to myself. It's something I can show Ethan when he grows up and my wife and I can look back and say, God, you're big. God, you're miraculous. God, you're amazing. You do amazing things in amazing ways. See, the first thing we have to be is someone who is learning. If you want to do great things, be prepared to do great things. Trust God. Document God. Search God. Look at something else. I want you to jump over to Numbers chapter 11. And I want you to write this word down. Joshua, before he went off and did amazing things for the Lord in huge ways, was also a man that underwent immense discipline. Yikes. I know. No one likes the word. It's not a word that we like. You hear the word discipline and you think, oh, no, please, please, no. But look at Numbers chapter 11, verse 26. Two men remained in the camp. The name of one was Eldad and the other Medad. Great names, aren't they? And the spirit rested upon them, and now they were among those who had been registered, but had not gone out to the tent. And they prophesied in the camp. And in verse 27, it says, So a young man ran and told Moses and said, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And in verse 28, it says, Then Joshua, the son of Nun, the attendant of Moses from his youth, said, Moses, my Lord, restrain them. Can you picture this young guy? You can picture Joshua. He's the young guy. He steps up. Moses, my Lord, restrain them. And then look what happens next. Moses actually looks at him in verse 29 and he says, Are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit upon them. Now, there's a few things we want to look at here. But beside from learning, we have to understand that Joshua underwent immense discipline. See, this is in public. This is in front of everybody. Joshua, the one who's training under the great Moses, and Moses in public says to him, Hey, buddy, you're you're dead wrong here. Now, I don't know about you, but when a leader or someone you trust in authority or position over you, a boss, a parent, or anyone does something in public, it's, it's pretty embarrassing. It's pretty shaming. But have you ever noticed that a good leader, a good authority figure, or someone always will do it when it's not just about that issue, but it's because of bigger lesson and principle that they want you to learn? You see, what's happening right here is Moses is looking at his young guy, his superhero, and he says, buddy, you got to learn something. The one thing you must learn in this life is something that I've had a hard time learning myself. And that is the fact that this is not about your position. This is about God's glory and God's kingdom. And we want all of these people here to be in proximity to God. That's why we exist. We want to be able to touch God and know God and be with him. And why would you think for a second that it should only be me? I wish everyone had this opportunity. And don't you ever shut that down. He was teaching a young man that this was not about him. You see, Moses, remember when he had unveiled, he had taken himself up on the mountain and when the, the glory of God was actually retreating from him in his face after the Ten Commandments, he would have a veil over himself? See, that was prideful. He didn't want everyone to know that God's glory was leaving him. Do you remember later on the same thing happened where he hit a rock and nothing came out? 
Or he talked to the rock, no water came out, so he hid it because he didn't want anyone to know that, that God wasn't listening to him. He wanted water to come out so that everyone following him would know the fact that he was in control. Moses himself had had to learn this. This was a principle of Moses' life. And he says, Joshua, buddy, listen, you can do a lot of things. The one thing you don't do is ever take this into your own hands and think it's all about you. The crazy thing when you look at this is that the same principle was applied in David's life. The patriarchal figures of the Bible had to learn this. You remember David? David was anointed king by Samuel. He knows he's going to be king. And he steps into the palace and begins playing his beautiful harp for Saul. You remember? Now, it sounds pretty corny, but you can picture him sitting there, you know? I don't know how they sang back then. But then Saul does what? Who are you? You think you know all these things? And he goes off and he takes spears and starts throwing them at David. And they're pinning them in the wall. But you notice that David never, ever once grabbed one of those spears out of the wall and said, bring it on, buddy. I'm God's anointed. I'll take you down. Remember later on in the hills of En Gedi when the same thing came down? Saul's chasing him all around the country. He has a chance to kill him, but he holds up a piece of his cloth instead and says, I will not touch God's anointed. On the other side of the kingdom, once David is king, he has a son named Absalom. You remember Absalom? He's trying to take the kingdom away. He's building armies against his dad. And and, and what's crazy is that David still doesn't do what Saul does and throw spears and try to attack him. He walks out on a balcony and says, okay, God, you gave me this kingdom. It's yours. If you want to take it away, you can. At the beginning of David's life and at the end, he learned the principle that it's not about him. It's about God's kingdom, not his position, his title, his influence, or who he was. It's a principle that Moses was trying to teach Joshua. Now, here's the question. Are you at a place where God's disciplining you? Do you find that sometimes things just aren't going the way you want them to go? You haven't had the life that's been fulfilled quite where you want it to go. You're a little frustrated. You're a little hurt. You're not quite getting some of the victories that you thought you would get. Sometimes in your prayer life, you feel like there's a distance between you and God. You have people in your life that you love, wise people who look at you and say, hey, I'm not, I don't know if this is all right, but I'm praying for you, but there's some issues I see, and you respond to them in rebelliousness, and you say, ah, that's not right, because it's all about you. There comes a point where we all have to learn to take the back seat and walk up to the options that are God's doors, and we say, okay, Lord, if one door's locked, I'm not walking through it. You open the door. We try one, it's locked, so we try the other one, and we walk through it. Then it continues again. We walk through the next one. Then we walk through the next one. And pretty soon we have this path that God has led us through in strategic and sovereign design because he knows what's best for you, not you. But our pride says, no, this is my plan. Chuck Smith was an amazing man. A lot of you know him who started Calvary Chapels. Now, Calvary Chapels have boomed. They're an amazing, I'll call them a denomination, even they like being called that. But there was a day after the late 70s when they were moving forward in the early 80s and a young man named John Wimber walked up to Chuck Smith and said, you know what? A lot of people are following me. We have some theological differences and so I really think that we're going to have to look at maybe dividing this church. And Chuck Smith, who's a man of God, who is so in in tune with the Lord and so understanding and prudence, looked at him and he said, hey John, I got to tell you, man, sheep will go where they get fed. This isn't my church. This is God's church. Take your people. We'll support you. Go start a church. You can't have my building, but you can do whatever you want. Do you realize that John Wimber's the one who started Vineyard? And whether you disagree with theologically, that's okay. You still now have two thriving denominational bodies that are doing amazing things and far greater and wider spread things than if one man like Chuck Smith had said, no, I'm fighting this fight. He was beyond that and said, the kingdom is bigger than my own personal pride and my own personal power and my own personal premise. This is about Jesus, not about Chuck Smith. That's the way we all should be. Can I ask you, dads, how often do you gather your family 
in the living room at dinner. And you sit down and you begin praying and saying, God, what do you want for this family? How often after dinner, before you go to the television, do you open up a Bible and read with your kids? And say, you know what? Open up doors for us, Lord. But you're doing it because you're a leader who cares more about where they are in the kingdom than just your own thoughts and your own selfishness and your own needs. If you're a mom in here, i got to ask you, how often when your child is real small, do you get down on your hands and knees and instead of just singing a song like the wheels on the bus go round and round, round and round, round and do you sing the song over and over again, Jesus loves me? Because even at the age of two, you want to breathe into them the fact that this is about a kingdom that's beyond this world. If you're a grandparent in here, how often do you show up when you know your, your son or daughter are ultra busy and you take the grandkids out for a whole day and then you walk and you look at your, your son or daughter and you say, you know what, do me a favor, guys. Will you please go out? Will you please just take a whole day and go to the beach and spend some time together? Because you know that their marriage is more important to the legacy of that family than just your own personal day of going to the boutique or going shopping or whatever you do when you're at that stage of life. All of a sudden, it's bigger and it's not about you. Discipline is something that says, I have to learn, but I also can have times where God talks to me in honest ways. And it was a principle that Joshua learned, but there's one last one I want to show you. Flip over real quick to Exodus 3311, and I'm going to show you for me a verse that has literally changed and impacted my life in amazing ways. This is a verse that I hold on to. I'm going to tell you a personal story about it as well. Exodus 3311. In the Old Testament in Exodus, there's this idea of the tent of meeting. Now, a lot of you know about it. You're our theological scholars, and that's good. But you remember that out of the sky, a pillar cloud would come, and it would rest on this tent, and Moses would walk in the tent, and everyone would stand around, and they would all worship. And they'd go, oh, whoa, look, it, it's the Lord. He's here. And they would praise him and get excited, and Moses would go in there, and he would talk to God as a friend. Now, I don't know what that was like. I don't know if you ever thought about this. How do you talk to God? Like, like a smoky cloud, was his face there? Was it like, I don't, I don't understand, but Moses was in there, and it says he talked to God like a friend. And look at Exodus 33, verse 11, what it says. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. And now, here, just hold on to this. This is amazing. Look what it says. When Moses returned to camp, his servant Joshua, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Now, this to me is, is amazing. You have Moses who's walking up to this tent and the pillars descending and all the people are standing around and they're praising God. And then you have this guy, Joshua, who just follows him in. Puts his head down and he says, you know, oh, I guess I'm here. And then Moses leaves the tent after whatever the conversation they had. I'm assuming Joshua got to participate, but Joshua stays there. He doesn't go anywhere. He's sitting there, and you can just picture him. He crosses his legs, he crosses his arms, whoa, and he drops the microphone, and that's really good. And then he drops, he closes his, his arms and everything, and then he's sitting there, and then there's a moment where he crosses, and he, he's like a little kid. I'm not leaving. No way. I'm not going. And Moses has already left the moment, but now he spends even more time in there because he says, God's presence is where I want to be. Let me ask you a question. Are you like Joshua in that not only are you learning, not only are you undergoing discipline, but are you at a point in your life where you are passionate? where you are passionate about the Lord. See, I picture this guy who said, you know what, whatever amount of understanding Moses has, I want more. Whatever amount of the spirit Moses has, I want more. I want this to be something that's so amazing and beautiful, and I want to know God. Now, here's the question. Are we people that literally get on our knees and beg God to be a part of our life? Do you beg his presence? 
Do you get so fired up in moments that when you're in prayer and you are saying, God, I understand that you have a big world to govern, but I want you to look at my family and look at my life and look at my ministry and please, God, just show me who you are. Please take me to new levels and new depths, God. Please, like Joshua and Moses and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David, please give me that understanding of who you are. Let me know you the way they do. Father, I just ask that right now you'll see me. Holy Spirit, show me something. Have you ever said that before? Have you ever looked up in the clouds and said, Holy Spirit, just do something cool in the clouds? I was doing that the other night, and I, I, pretty soon you're making things up, and you're like, oh, that might be it, because you're just so desperate. And then you open the word, and you pour yourselves into it, and then all of a sudden there's a moment where God speaks. Have you ever had that, where a certain part of the word just jumps out at you and you go, that's the one. That's what he wants for me. That's what he wants. It's a passionate relationship with Jesus Christ, a passionate relationship with God where you say, you know what? I'm going in the tent and I'm not leaving. I'm not going to do it. The only way that we know Joshua was able to, to come to a place of conquering and come to a place of victory was because he had walked a road seeking God so that God could prepare him and put him in a place to eventually do that. The reason this is personal to me is because Last summer, um, Pastor Chuck decided to come to Crossroads Christian Church in Corona and leave Christ Church of the Valley. And uh, being an employee at Christ Church of the Valley, that was not a fun moment. And I remember, we loved Chuck. He had married us. Uh, he was our uh, mentor, our friend. And the moment he walked into staff and he said, guys, I love you. And I want you to know this is what's going on. I really feel God's called me to Crossroads. That was an exciting day for everyone here. That was an incredibly sad day for everyone there. And I remember this thought went through my head where I thought, oh my gosh. And I began to go through literally weeks and weeks where I was wrestling with the Lord. And I said, God, this is hard. My wife and I would pray and we didn't know what was going to happen. We didn't know what was happening with the church. It was just an upheaval of a time. It's for us. And you know, that's what God wants because he takes you through those trials to learn. It's part of discipline. But I remember sitting with her and praying, and then there was a morning where I went back outside, and I'm sitting in my backyard. It had been about a month since Chuck had come. And I just began asking God. I said, God, you got to tell me, what do I do with my life? Do I stay here and serve? And that was the day that I, I opened up my Bible to Exodus 33, and I had been going through it in my journal, and I still have it written down, which is neat to go back and look. But I got to that point right there where it said that Joshua would not depart from the tent. And you know the thought that went through my head? I thought, you know, out of all the men that I know, Pastor Chuck is one that I think every single step of the way pursues who Jesus Christ is, who God is, and pursues the Holy Spirit. And I just know in my heart, and this was going through my head, I thought, I know in my heart that he's listening to the Lord and he's making the right step. And it was in that moment right there that I decided, I said, you know what, I'll do whatever it takes. I'm going to try to follow him. I, I called him up, <laughs> I, and I was like a crazy kid. I said, I got to meet with you. I got to talk with you. We went to lunch. And I said, Chuck, this is going to sound crazy. I don't care what we have to do. Wherever you go, I'm going to be there. Now, it freaked him out a little bit, you know, <laughs> and I really did. I said, I, I, Lord, I, I said, Chuck, I want you to know that I think God has a, just an amazing thing. He's doing amazing things through you, and so I don't care if you pay me. We want to come to Crossroads, and I'm just going to follow you around. And you know what? After he laughed a little bit and smiled, he kind of said, wow, that'd be really good, and I think it'd be neat, and I think it would work. But I think he was a little bit scared. He thought, this guy's going to stalk me. And it was that night that I showed up at his house in Chino. I did. I'd throw pebbles at his window, and I'm singing songs to him. No, I didn't really do that. I'm just kidding. Can you imagine that? I started to mimic him. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> no, I didn't really do that. I didn't do that. But I told him, I said, you know, God's doing something amazing. And I'm going to tell you, I can tell you already in only a half of a year of being here, 
I believe God guided me into making the right decision because I believe God is using him and using Crossroads already in amazing ways. And we are blessed as a couple to even be here and walk side by side with you guys through this, this time. This is an amazing place to be. But that was an amazingly emotional time for me. And I want to ask you guys on a level, it's just if you're honest right now, would you say that you are desperately seeking for the Lord? Do you wake up every single morning and say, God, where's your spirit going to be today? Please show me. Just talk to me and tell me. I'm going to find it. I'm going to find it. And then you say, who do you want me to talk to? And all of a sudden, there's that person at work that pops up. Have you ever had that before? And you walk over and you say, I don't know why I'm talking to this person. And all of a sudden, they say, I had a hard day. I don't know what to do. And you go, I guess I got an answer for you. The name's Jesus and everything. You can come to my church. And then they come. And in that moment, the Holy Spirit began to work. Are you that willing to pursue God and pursue him? Yesterday, my, my dad this whole week, my dad began pushing and pushing and pushing to hang out. Now, my dad and I don't have really a relationship like, you know, one of those softy, sensitive relationships. He's more of an old school, hard guy. And, and the reality is he's doing great ministry. He travels the world. He's over in Asia. He's back and forth. And I'm busy here. And so we just don't have much time to hang out. You know, we just don't. And he doesn't want to be the guy to really push it. I don't want to be the guy to push it. And we need to do better. But for some reason, all week, he was like, Tony, um, he's calling me, and you, you know when you get cell phone calls, and they kind of bug you, and they shouldn't, but you feel bad, and so you're putting them to voicemail, and that's my dad. I'm a real jerk, and finally, I pick up the phone, and we're talking, and things are going good. He says, I got to hang out with you, so we schedule Thursday. That doesn't work, and then we get all the way till Saturday morning. Yesterday morning, he says, I'll ride out and see you. I'll take the bike. I'll come out. I'll do anything it takes. I want to hang out. I thought, what's going on? Is he, like, dying? I mean, this is weird. My dad's not that kind of guy, so eventually, he, I show up, 7 o'clock on Saturday morning before a meeting that I had to get to, and we're hanging out at Starbucks, and he pulls up, and we're talking, we're talking about nothing. You know those conversations? And it was cool. I was hanging out with my dad again, and we're joking and talking ministry. It's so fun to have that in common. Then we're talking about how horrible the Lakers are again, and all these things come up, and he asks about Brienne, and then he has to fly out to the Philippines or Asia, so he can't be there for the baby, and we get down toward the last 10 minutes, and I'm getting antsy. I'm watching the clock, and I'm thinking, i got to be somewhere at 9, and all of a sudden, he just stops. And I thought, here it is. Whatever it's going to be, this is what it is. And he takes off his glasses, his sunglasses, and he's kind of emotional. And he said, hey, Tony, I, I just want to let you know, I want to do something that my dad didn't do for me. And what that was, was be intentional later on in life about scheduling time, because time is our most valid resource. It's our most valuable one, to where we hang out. You know, it's hard with our schedules, but I want to take the lead. And I, my dad didn't do this for me, and I'm going to do it for you so that you have a legacy to teach Ethan. He said, let's just look at our calendars three months out. Let's pick one afternoon if we have to. I'll buy tickets for a basketball game. I'll drive out to see you. I don't care how much gas costs. Whatever you want to do, I'll do, just as long as we can connect and have a relationship together. And I've never really seen my dad get emotional, and I just thought, oh, Tony, you're a jerk. You need to do this. And I, I said, yeah, Dad, I will. I'll do this. Thank you for leading out. I want to do this. Let's put it on the calendar. Then I said, I got to go. <laughs> so we walk out to his bike, and I notice he has kind of a flat tire on the back, and, you know, it's kind of short, and we give the awkward hug and, you know, the embrace and everything that guys do. And <clears throat> then all of a sudden, um, I said, hey, do you need help getting your tire fixed? And he said, no, it's okay. I know you're busy. I said, okay, cool, thanks, because I really wasn't going to help anyway. And, uh, and then I, and he, and I looked at him. I said, Dad, there's a Mini Mart down the way. There's a Chevron, and you, know, you, you can handle it. <clears throat> and I remember he looked up at me, and he said, you know, thanks, Tony. I know you got to run, but this was so worth it. And I thought, whoa, this is my dad throwing, showing some sensitivity. 
And so he hops on his bike, and I hear him roar out of there. And 9.15, I noticed in the meeting I had missed a phone call. <clears throat> and then 3 o'clock yesterday afternoon, my mom calls. I thought, this is weird. And she says, hey, Tony, I just wanted to let you know that this morning on the way home uh, from breakfast or from Starbucks, you know, your dad was on the 71, and he got in a really, really bad accident. <clears throat> and I just kind of stopped. You know that feeling? You're kind of like, well, what, what do you mean? What happened? And you're looking for answers. And she said, well, here's what happened. She said, he's on the 71. It goes to two lanes right there. And uh, there had been a car in, his, in the front of him, a car on the left. He, he tried to stop early, but he began, the bike began to fishtail. And he knew if he went into the car on the left, he'd cause more of a problem for everybody. So he just chose to lay the bike down. And at 60 miles per hour, it just went sliding. He slid into the guardrail. Um, he's laying, he was laying there in some weeds. He has ab- allergies, so now he's got his back, his hamburger, um, you know, slid 30 feet. She's telling me this whole story, and I'm sitting there on the phone, and I'm thinking, oh, what? Well, he's home now. They just got him back from the hospital. They have him all wrapped up. He's on morphine. I'm thinking, what? <clears throat> and you know what kept just bothering me all night? What haunted me all night was that last line that he said before he hopped on his bike when I was urgent and inconvenienced to get out of there. It was... Oh, it's okay, it was worth it. And you and I realize is I bet if I asked him today, he would say, no, Tony, it wasn't worth it. <laughs> but what's crazy is a dad, a good dad, always will do whatever it takes to spend time and be with their children. That's what they do. However far they have to drive, however much they have to pay, however much time they have to give up, because that's the way you love. And I... Uh, What's crazy to me is that God, the Father, Jesus, came down and said, I know what kind of pain and agony I'm going to go through. But all I'm asking for, like Joshua, is just for you to enter the tent of meeting and be passionate for me. And just to love me and just to seek me and just to want to have time with me. You know, do you realize that in a room this size, there are a few of you who are saying, you know what, I'm going through some stuff. I've had a hard life. I've got some baggage that weighs down on me. But as a father, you're in heaven. Your dad says, will you just enter the tent? Will you just be passionate? Will you just look for me? Because there's nothing that would be more worthwhile. And in this moment right now, God may be saying, you know what? A few of you guys have to start over. He might be saying, you know, maybe you've walked away from me. You're not passionate. You haven't been learning. You haven't been doing your quiet times. And like Joshua, you just haven't sought me with everything that you are. I want to tell you, the way that we start over and doing that is just to pray a prayer. It's a prayer that says, I want to come to you, Jesus, or I want to come back to you, Jesus. It's a prayer that says, I don't want to fight this fight anymore on my own. And so tonight, I want to ask you, if you're sitting here and you know you have some distance between you and your father, I want you to know he loves you beyond measure. And he literally wants you right now to take up a relationship with him. He wants to walk with you. He doesn't want you to have to leave this room alone. And so right now, I want to go to a time where I'm going to just pray a prayer. It's a prayer of refreshment, a prayer of starting over, a prayer where you again say, Jesus, you're my Savior, you're my Lord, but even beyond that, you're my Father, and I'm passionate about who you are. And if God's calling you in this moment, I want to ask you to pray this prayer with me. So let's bow our heads. God, I know in a a room this size, there are dozens of people who maybe haven't been living the passionate life that you've called them to. The life where they seek you and they want to know you. And the reality is that you're a dad who so desperately wants to be with them. That even right now, you're looking down saying, please, just come back. Let's begin a relationship again. 
I died on a cross for you and all I want is for you just to open up and lift your arms and accept this fact and to come and let me carry you through life circumstances. We know that right now, God, you want to take some people out of their loneliness and you want to give them hope. With every head bowed right now, if you feel that God is calling and tugging on your heart, I simply want to tell you, this is your moment for change. This is your moment to start over. And if you feel that God's pulling on you and you want to begin a relationship with him, just whisper these words to him. Say, Jesus, I've been going through some hard times. I've got some things in my life that I'm not proud of. And I admit that I've made some mistakes. But I believe that you came and you died on a cross for me. And I believe that you rose again. And I believe that even right now, you're sitting in heaven. And as a dad, you want to reach down and spend time with me. You want to carry me through some of life's circumstances. And you want to make my life what you've always wanted it to be. And so in this moment, I take all that I am, I lay it at your feet, and I give my life to you. And I pray this in your name. And I say, amen.